And so today uh, we're going to look at, uh, at sin versus grace. So we're going to be in chapter 3. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, fire up your devices uh, to chapter 3, verse 9 is where we'll start at, and we'll go through 18. If you don't have a Bible, we've got pew Bibles there in the front for you. They're already pre-marked, as a matter of fact, so you can go ahead and open it right up to the page, because uh, we want you to read God's Word as, as we're hearing it. Don't want you to just hear me speaking. I want, want God's Word to speak to you. So go ahead and open those up. And so, like I said, today we're going to be looking at the effects of, of sin versus the effects of grace. You know, the, how sin acts upon us compared to how the grace of God, how, how, how that's compared when it, it is acting upon us. As we've worked through this, as we look through these first few chapters, and, and Paul is reaching the climax here in, in his, his, uh, his claim that, that the whole world is guilty, if you remember, he, he started with the pagans, the Gentiles, and how they had denied the revelation of God in nature. And then he's also talked to, to the Jews and talked about how they've had the law, but they failed to uphold it, failed to fulfill it. And so if we're talking about Jews and we're talking about Gentiles, well, that's the only two people in the whole world. So Paul is saying the whole world is, is guilty in God's eyes. And, and so like a lawyer in a courtroom who is building up their case, and all of a sudden they get to that pivotal point when it's time to bring out the star witness. It's time to bring out that piece of evidence that, that drives the final nail in the coffin for what they're fighting for. Well, Paul is going to do that in these verses. You see, in these verses, Paul brings out his star witness. He brings out the Word of God. He started by logically speaking with them, trying to help them understand. He knows, as a Jew, he knows what they're going to, how they're going to process through this. So he begins by logically talking to them. And then he comes to Scripture because he simply wants them to believe what they already believe. He's going to show them how the Scripture, how God has always pointed to the whole world being guilty. Now compare this to the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews. And I do believe that Paul is a writer of Hebrews, uh, but that's a debate for another time. But if we look at that, the writer of Hebrews starts with Scripture and then shows the logic behind that thoughts, those, that idea. Well, Paul is going the opposite. He's going to quote God, quote the words that they had been studying, the words they had heard their whole lives, and say, if you believe this, then you've got to believe this. So join us as, uh, as we read through this. We're going to read verses eight, or I'm sorry, 9 through 18, and then we're going to look at the effects of sin Versus the effects of grace. So beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and in the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word. Father, I invite you in today. Send your spirit into this place. Let us feel the conviction of our need for grace. 
Let us feel the conviction of sin on our hearts and see the grace that you offer. So speak into us today, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul has, has, has been leading up to this point. And with what he's already spoke with them about, if you remember last week, he, he talked with them about the, the, the four objections they were going to have, the Jews. He knew, as a Jew, he knew what their objections were going to be, and he addressed these objections the, the, the whole idea, because of their privileged position, that God uh, shouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't, and can't condemn them. And Paul shows them the fallacy in that. And he knows that they're going to be struggling with this. They're going to they're, they're be struggling with this idea because now they've been just basically beaten down. Everything they believe, they've been beaten down on. And so they, they ask, well, well, what's the point then? What, what, what's the point from all this? Right there in verse 9, says, what then? Are we better than they? Well, first, Paul is, he's a Jew. He's lumping himself. He says, are we better than they? The translation, it, it, sometimes it's hard to translate across. Anybody who has learned another language, especially if you've come from another language to learning English, you realize that words don't necessarily go straight from A to B. And there's some uh, ideas that are in there. And sometimes it's hard to find what that idea was. Well, in the Greek, verbs can be, they can be passive, they can be active, they can be past, they can be future, they can be a masculine, feminine, plural. There's, there's so many ways. And so the verb here, when, when Paul says, are we better than, than they, the, the thought process in this can also be, are we worse than, than they are? Are, are well, what then? Are we, are we worse than the Jew, than the Gentiles? Are they better than us? They're struggling with this idea that, man, there's nothing that we've done is, that's right. Have you ever felt that yourself? That it doesn't matter what you do, it's not right, it's not good enough? It doesn't amount to anything? Well, this is where they're at. They're like, well, are, they, are, are we really that bad? And Paul says, no, no, of course not. He says, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He says, man, he says, everybody's in the same boat. You're no worse off. You're no better than. You're in the same boat as everyone else. Everybody's equal. Everybody's condemned the same. Because he says they're held down by sin. Everybody is under the weight of sin. doesn't matter who they are. Actually, the word that he, he uses there for under... The, the, and the meaning behind that is that the visualization of being trampled down, that crushed under the feet, oppressed, driven down into the mud. And so Paul is saying that they're being crushed. Everybody's being crushed by the weight of sin, both Jews and Greeks. You see, that's what sin does. Sin crushes us. Sin holds us down. It keeps us from fulfilling the purpose that we were created for. You've heard me say it before. You'll hear, it me, hear me say it all, all the time, that you were created on purpose and for a great purpose. And that's a relationship with God. But because of sin, you can't have that relationship with him. That's what sin does. It holds us down in the mud and muck. And the more sin we have, the more it brings us down. And so we need something that can lift us up. We need something that can bring us up out of that crushing weight. What we need is we need the grace of God. 
We need his grace. Where sin crushes, grace lifts. Where sin holds us down, grace brings us up. It removes that crushing weight of sin. You see, sin is, is a bondage to us. And because we're bonded to it, because it causes us to be bound and constrained by it, Paul's talking here, he's going to quote out of the Old Testament to help them see that, that there's effects that affect everybody. The sin affects everybody in the whole world. It doesn't matter who they are. God had spoke about it for, the, for thousands of years. And the first one he's going to tell, he breaks this down into two, two categories. The first one, it's in the first three verses we're going to look at here, 10, 11, and 12. And he's showing that sin is universal. Sin is universal. Every man, every woman, every child, whoever is, was, or will be, sins. Everybody does. Because everybody does, there's no exceptions. There's no exemptions. I sin. My children sin. You sin. The Pope sins. Everybody sins. That's just a matter of fact the way there is. We're all being held down by it. Because we're all being held down by it, we're all affected by it, we can see the effects of it. When it's influencing our lives, Paul's saying there's things you can see. And he gives three of them here. The first one, he says, is the sin keeps us from doing what is right. Sin just keeps us from doing what is right. In 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Paul is, is quoting out of Psalm 14 and 53, and the, this is an exact quote, because the, the idea of exactly quoting Scripture is actually a relatively new idea. Uh, back then, a lot of people couldn't read, they couldn't write, they had what they heard orally, and so they would paraphrase, and maybe for emphasis. And so Paul here, the word he uses is righteous. If we look at when David wrote these two psalms, and I've got a list of all the psalms that he's quoting out of in Isaiah, if you want it afterwards. But David says there is none good. And that's the idea, that there's none good. Now, this doesn't mean that, that, that everyone's evil. I'm not saying that they're all evil. Far be from that. What he's saying is that in God's eyes, they were not following the moral direction that, that God had for them, the moral righteousness that God desired for them. I got a visual here. We'll see if Sammy can keep up with this one. Pop this first one up there on for us. Everybody knows what this is. This is a compass. It's a very basic compass. I remember holding a compass in my hand back in Boy Scouts. Our phones have compasses on them. A compass always points in one direction. It always points north. Because of the magnetic poles on the earth, the, the, the way it flows from south to north, a compass will always point north unless something else affects it. Well, Paul's saying there are none righteous. And so we can see those. Sammy, next slide. We can see those. Oh, the, I'm sorry. I forget. North is God. I forgot my own visual. It's been one of them weeks. North is God, okay? God is our moral compass. Everything we do points to him. That was kind of an important piece. I can't believe I... Yeah, don't forgive me. So. <laughs> God forgives me, so it's okay. The, God is our moral compass. Everything we do points to him. 
It does. But Paul says there are none righteous. Now is the next slide I want. So we can see that. We can see we know people who are fleeing as far south as they can go. They are running in the opposite direction of God. And we'll say, yeah, there aren't, they're not righteous. But I'm not like that. I mean, I make a few mistakes, but, but I, I'm not like that. I'm, I, I think I'm morally right. I think I am. Well, you might be heading northwest. You might even be heading north-northeast. And yes, if you're the orange or the yellow, you are better aimed than the red. But you're still not following the moral compass. Something has to come along with a compass on the outside. If you hold a magnet to it, that needle will move. Well, when you're heading in these directions, you're still not following God's ways because you have put something there. Society has put something there that has moved your moral compass, has pulled it away and say, well, look, it's pointing in this direction. But it's not pointing the right way. It's pointing where our desires are. That's what Paul's saying. When he's quoting this to him about have none have done righteous, yeah, you may not be the worst there is, but you're still not doing what God's desires are. You're still not following him. You see, sin causes us to do what we want. It changes our moral compass. It's what acts on the outside. And so it has us do what we deem to be right, not what God deems to be right. But without God as the standard, without him as the, the focal point that we're going for, then there are no truths. There are no moral truths. If we're going to affect our compasses so that I want my compass to point this way, but you want my compass to point that way, and there's no moral truths. And what may be right for me isn't necessarily right for you. It can be right for me, but it can be wrong for you. Without God as the standard. And that's what sin does. Sin corrupts us, and it, it, it misguides our compass, and it keeps us from following what God's plan is. It, it pulls us away from him. People don't do what's right, but they do what they think is right for the wrong reasons. They don't do what's right by God. They do what they think is right, but it's the wrong reasons because it's often for selfish reasons. It's for greed. It's for my own self-gain. And so that's how sin keeps us from doing what is right. But not only does it keep us from doing what is right because we don't do what is right, Paul says it keeps us confused. Keeps us confused in verse 11. Paul says, there is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. There's none who understands. They don't understand God because they're not doing what's right, what he desires. They don't understand him. And if they don't understand him, they don't see a need for him. And so they don't see a need for him. They don't seek him out. It's like the, the, a politician who sees something wrong in the world, sees the world falling apart, but they don't understand why it's falling apart. And so they don't understand their need for God, and they don't see a need for him. They, they don't understand what his will and desires are. They just don't understand. And so they don't seek out God, and they start seeking their own desires. We seek our own ways. And I know the argument that's there now, wait, 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 wait. People seek God. There are people who go to all religions. 
They're, they're looking for God in multiple ways. They're looking in different religions and always lead to God. From a logical standpoint, that can't be true because if always lead to God, but Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Well, then that would mean he's lying, and so not all religions lead to God, and so none of them do. But the matter of it is, the truth in this is, they're not seeking God. They're seeking a religious experience. They're seeking an explanation for what's happening in life. They're trying to make sense of what's happening in life. They don't understand. They're dealing with pain. They're dealing with a hurt, whatever it is. And so they're trying to find that inner peace. They're trying to find themselves. They're not trying to find God. That's what sin does. It keeps us from seeking God because if we found God, we would then have to answer to God. And I can tell you, I don't want to answer to anybody. Most people don't want to answer for anything. We live in a world that doesn't have people stand up and take responsibility for anything anymore. And they sure don't want to have to answer to God. And so sin keeps us from understanding him and from seeking him. And so if we don't know what's right and we don't understand God, well, Paul and chooses a, a passage here that's it's, it's, it's painful because he says, if you don't fill either of those, he says you're meaningless. Sin makes us meaningless. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. This idea of, of, of being meaningless, being useless, because a life apart from God, it has no meaning. It has no meaning. There's nothing to this life other than to live and to die without him. But Paul's saying that if you're not fulfilling the purpose you're created for, if, you, if you're not doing what's right, you're, you're confused about what God is, and so you're not following him, he goes, you, you were created to be in a relationship with him. He's, you're useless. We become useless. I tried to, to think of an illustration to help point this out. Some illustrations come easy. Sometimes you just got to pick the easy illustrations. A water balloon. A water balloon. I fill a water balloon up. I get it just the right size so I can hurl it with maybe a little bit of excessive force and cause a mild concussion on my children and get them a little wet. But if there's a hole in that water balloon, I fill it up and water's coming out of it. It's worthless. It's not fulfilling the purpose that it was created for. Why do I even need it? Why even keep it? It doesn't have any use. And Paul is saying that's what sin does. It makes us useless because we become so corrupted, so broken, that we can't even live out the purpose we were created for. And so his whole point in this passage of showing that, that sin is universal is to show that, that because it's universal, no one is right before God. There is none who are right. None of us are. Nobody back then were, was. He wanted them to see. You guys have been reading this, those bold letters in your Bible. That's quotes out of the Old Testament. He's saying, you guys have been reading this. Believe what you read. It says there's none of us that are good. But I want to compare this idea of sin versus grace. 
and what sin says we are and what's God's grace. When you've put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, when you have handed over your brokenness to him, the one who has done the work through faith, you believe that, that he came, he died, and he arose again, that he's your savior. God offers you grace. And so what does it look like to live under that grace? Well, sin, sin says that nothing we do is right. Nothing we do is right. It's all wrong. Grace says you're right because of what Christ has done. It's not based on you. It's what Christ has done. Sin, sin keeps us from seeking God. Sin holds us back and keeps us blinded so that we don't seek God. But God's grace, God's grace is in the fact that he seeks us. He came down from heaven. He stepped down from his place in heaven and glory into a rebellious world to come after us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Third, sin says we are worthless. Sin says we're useless. When we are trapped in sin, we're useless. But grace, grace says that you are the child of the king. You aren't useless. You are the child of God. Where sin condemns, listen to this, sin condemns, grace commends. Where sin condemns us, grace commends us. Hallelujah. And so Paul is kind of starting out in this broad picture as he's, he's stringing this, this, per, this, this string of pearls out for him to follow along. And he starts out with this, this view of sin as universal. And he's going to transition into to show him how it truly affects on an individual basis, what the effects are individually. Because while it is universal, listen, sin permeates completely. To our very core, to the very soul of who we are, sin goes down into us. Our sinful nature is made evident in everything that we say and do. Everything that we do, everything that we say points to our sinful nature. And that's where Paul's going out in these next few verses. First, he wants to show how our words, our words show our sinful nature. He paints this picture using the throat and lips and mouth and tongue of this brokenness from the inside. He begins by saying their throat is an open grave. Wow. What, a, what an imagery the throat is an open grave, this, this idea, uh, visualization of, of this inner decay. We could picture an open grave and, and the sight of, of, of the rotting corpse, the, the smell that, that would be the putridness. And, and Paul, here quoting out of the Psalms, is saying the throat, that's what the throat is. It's this, this idea that it's opening up to show this, this heart. And that we all have this, and it's this heart that's broken, and then it, it comes out through our throat in the words that we say. I want you to think we all know someone. If you don't know someone, kind of like last week, you might be that someone. Uh, but we all know someone who constantly speaks with obscenity, with vulgarity, hatred, and anger. And what do we tell our kids when we hear that? Oh, they're, they're not a nice person. There's something, that, there must be something wrong with them. They're, 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 they're having a bad day. Something's wrong. What, what they're saying reflects what's going on inside. 
And then he says, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. Still there in 13, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. This idea of constantly lying. And if we read the psalm that David, when he said this, he's also talking about flattery. Saying even nice things because we want to get what we want. And it's saying evilness, truly is what it is. Saying whatever we can to get our way, to get what benefits us. The poison of asps is under their lips. This, the, the lips and this, this visualization of you know, the, these asps, they were, they're a snake that's over there in the Middle East. They're a horrible, horrible snake. They're greatly feared because when they bite you, if you don't die, if you don't die, your skin literally begins to rot off and fall off. The poison that they inject is so harmful that it causes the skin to rot away. And the pain and destruction is agonizing. Well, that's the, the picture that's being painted here with our, with our tongues or, or with our lips. This picture of the destruction of what our words can say. And how they can decimate people. This old idea that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. When, when we're filled with sin and that, that's coming out, those words are pointing to a sin-filled heart. And the destruction that they can cause is, is unbelievable. And finally, he says, a, a mouth that's full of cursing and bitterness. Now, cursing, this isn't cursing like uh, talking like a sailor. This is cursing of wishing evil upon people. That, they, that man is constantly wishing evil upon people. Anger, jealousy, strife, what comes out. It all reveals what's inside. See, that's what the point of all this is. When he's talking about the, the throat and the tongue and the lips and the mouth... What he's saying is our words reveal our character. Our words reveal our character. They show what is going on inside us. They reveal what is happening within us. Christ speaks of this. In Matthew 15... Beginning, I believe, where did I start at, Sammy, in that? Go to 15, there we go. I believe I started in, seven, or in 17. Peter, he's talking to Peter. And Christ says, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands do not defile the man. Christ is saying our words reflect what our hearts are doing. Our words reveal what's going on inside. Are you filled with anger? Are you filled with hate? It's going to come out in your words. That's what sin does. It corrupts us from the inside. So let me ask you, what do your words say about you? When, when somebody hears you speaking out in public, at your place of work, wherever you are, with your family around the dinner table, out back around the campfire, whatever it is, when someone hears you speaking, what do your words say about what's going on inside you? What do your words reveal about you? Do they reveal uh, 
a life that's been redeemed? Do they reveal a life that has been reconciled with God? Or do they reveal a life that's filled with selfishness, a life that's filled with brokenness, a life that's filled with hurt and pain and suffering? So we need to be careful with what our words are. Because Christ says we're going to be held accountable for our words. We're going to have to answer for them. Look at Matthew 12. Christ speaking about how the words reveal the character. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Again, this idea of it's what's inside is going to come out. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good, and the evil man brings out his evil treasure, what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. And look at this last one. Listen to this. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. By our words, we'll be justified and condemned. If you were to watch the replay of everything you've said, if you were to sit there and watch a replay of your life, are the words that you have spoken to people, are they going to point to your justification? Are they going to show that you have been perfect, that you have been good, that you have loved always, spoken peacefully? Or are they going to condemn you? Are they going to condemn us? Now, praise God that through the blood of Christ and our faith in him, we're no longer under that condemnation. And Paul will address this later on. But that doesn't give us free reign to go and speak evil, to go and speak hate, to go and speak angrily. And I'm very convicted of this. I'm trying to speak a lot more peaceful, especially with my children. Trying to be slow to anger. Because our words reveal our character. But not only does Paul say our words show our sinful nature, he also says our actions do. Back to the next few verses. He starts talking about our actions. He says, you know, they're uh, beginning in 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. You see, a heart that's filled with sin is selfish, and it will stop at nothing to get what it wants, including hurting other people, including hurting the ones that we love, including spewing vile, spewing hatred, saying things that we can't take back. The whole world is filled with with this. When the, the little kid gets mad at his sibling because he took the toy he wanted and he gets angry at him and he hits him, their feet are swift to shed blood. When the spouse who just wants something better thinks there's something better out there and so decides to go out and have an affair and in that it destroys their family. It destroys the other family. All because they thought they wanted something better. Destruction and misery are in their paths. People all over the world are berated, beaten, and even killed 
because they believe something different than the powers that be. And the path of peace they have not known. The world is quick. Man is quick to rush to violence. We are quick to rush to violence. And all that does is lead to a trail of oppression and misery. And so Paul's saying that's the effects of sin. Sin causes us to spew hate our, through our words. Sin and filling it in the whole world causes us to, to rush to violence. And then he says the ultimate reason for this is in 18. And this is actually probably the, the greatest result of sin within us. He says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's, man is so filled with brokenness, so filled with the corruption of sin that he has no fear of the creator of the world, creator of the universe. There's no reverence for God. They do not fear the repercussions of disobeying God's will. As a matter of fact, we just cast God aside as an afterthought. There's no fear of God. Now, pop quiz. The fear of God is the beginning of something. What is it the beginning of? Does anybody know? It is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But Paul's already shown them that they don't understand. They're confused. And so they don't understand and seek him. They don't fear him. Well, now they don't fear him. There's no wisdom to gain. Because there's no wisdom, they're not going to understand him. And it's this perpetual cycle that keeps going. But when we have that reverence for who God is, not just some friendly genie in a bottle that we can call upon to answer our needs, but that he is the creator of the universe. He is holding the whole world together by his thoughts. When we have that reverence for him, now we begin to seek him, seek his wisdom. Man, we want to know more of what his ways are, more of who he is. You see, sin has permeated us completely in every way. It goes to the very heart and soul of who we are. And the problem is people filled to capacity with brokenness, when you're filled to that capacity, it's going to have to come out. It's like a, a jar that you can only pour so much water in. And there's going to be a point where you put one more drop in there and it's going to overflow. When you're constantly falling into that brokenness, when you're constantly falling into a life of, of sin, a life of disobedience, a life of anger and hatred, eventually it's going to come out. You can't keep it in. There's nothing you can do to hold it in. It's impossible. Whatever fills you up is going to overflow out of you. Example, have you ever said something to somebody and as soon as you said it, you realized it was wrong? Oh, I'm so, oh my, I can't, I can't believe I said that. I, I apologize. I, I cannot believe I just said that. You knew it was wrong, but you couldn't hold it in. Whatever you fill yourself up with is what's going to come out. If you're filled up with sin, if you're filled up with brokenness, you're going to share that with the rest of the world. 
But if you're filled up with grace, if you're filled up with the love of God, my cup overfloweth. It's going to flow out into the world. So what's the comparisons here between sin and grace? Sin says, say what you want. You can say what you want. It's okay. Say whatever you want. Grace says, let our words reflect Christ. Let our words reflect a life redeemed. Sin says, you can do what you want. Go ahead and do whatever you want. It's okay. You do you. Grace says, seek God's will. Do God's will. And third, sin says, you have nothing to fear. Sin says, you have nothing to fear. Grace says, you don't have to be afraid. And those two can sound very similar, but let me tell you, they are very, very different. Because one is a lie. One is putting you in a dangerous place and saying, it's okay. Putting you out in the woods, surrounded, filled with grizzly bears and saying, you have nothing to fear, it's okay. The other is saying, there's something to be scared of. But you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about that thing. Yes, there are bear out in those woods. But as long as you stay inside this house with this door shut and with that gun, you don't have to be afraid. You're okay. Sin is a lie that leads to destruction. Grace is the hope that leads to redemption. Through our faith in Christ, we don't have to be afraid. Again, we are no longer under condemnation. And that's where God's grace comes from. God's grace comes into this world and into each one of us one way and one way only, and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the hope and redemption we have through him. And I want to share that gospel with you because that's why we're here ultimately. While we want to gather and study God's word, my purpose here, all our purpose here, is to share the good news of the gospel. The good news is this, you were created on purpose and for a great purpose, and that was to have a right relationship with God. But unfortunately, because of sin, the sin that we've seen, sin that is universal, sin that holds us in bondage, sin that corrupts and permeates us completely, you are separated from a perfect and holy God. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, the original sin, and has progressed through every generation to each one of us now. There are none who have exemptions. There are none who do righteousness, not even one. But God in all his wisdom saw our greatest need, and that was for a Savior. And so at just the right moment in time, he sent down his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin and to live a sinless life, to do what we could not do, to walk in complete obedience to the Father's will. Christ went to the cross where he died. He bore the wrath of God for your sins and mine. And he was buried and he arose on the third day, proving he was who he says he was and he can do what he says he can do. The Bible tells us if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too will be saved. You don't have to live under this bondage of sin. You don't have to have that crushing weight being under sin because the grace of God through his son has lifted us up. When he was lifted up high on that cross, he offered us a way to be lifted up out of the brokenness of ourselves. 
And so there's no better time than today. If you've not put your faith in Christ, today is the day. Would love to pray with you about it, talk with you about it. We'll be up here as we're singing our hymn here in just a minute. Uh, man, you don't have to live like that anymore. You don't have to have that brokenness. You don't have to, to, to feel that hurt and that pain because there is a God who loves you so much he died for you. But you have to accept it. God isn't going to force it upon anybody. You can't be good enough, but he's offering the way. And if you have put your faith in Christ, man, let's remember that. Let's remember we're not under that bondage. We're not under the control of sin anymore. Yes, we're going to sin. We still sin. But we have that promise from God that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We don't have to be held down. It doesn't have to reflect who we are because that's not who we were. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your grace is so much greater than our sin. Thank you that your love for us was so powerful that when we were running away, Lord, you were chasing after us. You came running to us in our time of greatest need. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live under that weight. Lord, I thank you that we can recognize that we are sinners. We can recognize that we are broken and that we have a need for you. And so, Lord, I pray today that you will speak into the hearts of each and every one of us to that parent who may have spoken to their child today in a way that they're regretting. Lord, let them feel that conviction that that's not who you've called them to be. To the person who feels like they're worthless, that they're useless, that nothing goes right, Lord, let them know that through your son, speaking to them that they can be a child of the king. Lord, I pray that today is the day that, that we all pivot away from the sin that is everywhere around us and we turn to you. Let our moral compass, God, always be pointed towards you. Everything that we do, everything that we say, may it be to glorify you to your will. May today be the day that we remember that sin is dead and that you, Lord Jesus, are alive and on the throne. So be with us as we go out this week. Let us take the good news of the gospel, the good news of hope and redemption to the whole world. Let us be found faithful until you return or you call us home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 